You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Last week, a further three more of the Plowshow 7 activists were sentenced to jail terms in Georgia, USA. The disarmament activists joined three already sentenced. The final one, Mark Colvin, has opposed a virtual sentence and has been given an 18 December date for his sentence. I spoke with friend and fellow activist Brian Terrell, who has followed the procedures since the action back in October 2018, when the Seven broke into the Kings Bay Naval Base to protest its stockpile of nuclear weapons. They were convicted last year of destruction of property on a naval installation, depredation of government property, trespass and conspiracy. During the break-in, the group cut a padlock and later a security fence at the naval base. They spilt blood on a naval wall and signature, spray-painted anti-war slogans on a walkway and banged on a monument to nuclear warfare. Brian, who are the three now sentenced and what can you tell us about their background? Okay, well, the three people who were uh, sentenced last week, the hearing was over. They were on a television connection with the court. They and their witnesses and and all the uh, participants except for the judge and the judge's clerks uh, who are in the court in Georgia because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And other people were allowed to listen in by telephone to the right to have a public these are, by law, public hearings. There's one more left. Mark Colville is going to be, is, he's now sentenced, scheduled to be sentenced in December, mid-December, because he is still holding out. He wants to be able to appear before the judge in public. And so he has in person and in public, and he has that right. Whether the judge is going to insist on him being in court or doing it over television, as with these other folks, uh, or put it off again next month, we'll see. Each gave very, very good testimonies. They're all people that I've known for many years, old friends, uh, each part of the Catholic worker movement. They're sentenced to various terms of imprisonment of up to 14 months. And one of the big concerns right now is that, uh, as we are for, for every prisoner, this is a uh, very concerning time for, for people to be in prison where social distancing is not not possible. You know, they're, they're not young people. You know, they're waiting to find out what prisons they'll be sent to, and they'll, they'll be re- uh, presenting themselves at a prison, you know, within the month. I think one thing that really struck me is in this is the, the whole dynamic, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, with I think the judge is clearly in over her head and the usual dynamic of a judge looking down the bench on people who are asking for mercy, people that the judge is by, by by the very title is in judgment of, it gets kind of turned around because she's talking um, again with with the, with the demographics of who gets criminally prosecuted. They're mostly young people talking to people who are, Older than the judge, I think all of them are, and more experienced. And I really think had a better command of the law than the judge, and also not afraid of her. And when they all held out that they did not commit a crime, that the crime is the 
the the Trident submarines and the the missiles that could you know destroy everything that we know that that is the crime. I'll read a quote from from Mark Carmen Prada's sentencing statement. I think pulls some of this together. He said, "I was told by the prosecution that I have an extensive criminal record, and when I heard this, I was dumbstruck. I didn't think I had a criminal record at all, but." I did at some point come to understand that I had 20 to 30 arrests, but in my mind, they're all justified. Every one of my actions has been a reaction to an American war crime. Moreover, in my every instance, my arrests were for acts of nonviolence, civil disobedience, or civil resistance. Let me say unambiguously that in all my extensive criminal history, I've never raised a hand in anger or violence against another. In court, I had mentioned that my concern that the mentioned my concern that the institutional memory of the court is perverse. So I think one one by one they they express that they are not the that they are not criminals. One of the things that, that stood against them is when you go to for sentencing, there's a whole point system that the judge works with, and you get points against you for not taking responsibility for your actions. The prosecutor was saying, well, these these people have not taken responsibility. And what he means is to say, I was wrong, I was bad, and I'm sorry. But they argued that they did take responsibility because they brought the cameras that took the pictures and made the videos. They're the ones who put out the press releases. The, 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 the prosecution, the trial, the prosecutor hardly have to work at all because the the evidence against them was provided by the defendants for the most part and never contested. You know, they said, we never said we didn't do any of these things. We never argued that we didn't do them, but we are, the argument was we did them, but we, are, but we are innocent. That's kind of a unique argument to be heard in the courts. And also, Brian, to look at the fact that you take these people out of society and put them in jail, that means that the, the poor and the needy have lost supporter. Yes, especially Carmen and uh, Martha both spoke to that and they both had witnesses to the uh, work that they do um, and how the work of the Catholic worker in New York, especially in this pandemic time again, providing meals and housing and other needs for some of the most vulnerable people in New York City and how key each person is and to take somebody away. And the prosecution used that, uh, you know, praising these people for their good work, but then saying how irresponsible they are to 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 put that in jeopardy. And uh, their argument is, oh, no, we're not, we didn't put that in jeopardy. The, the government has. Yeah, these are people who by by no means are are a danger to society. They certainly don't need to be punished. They aren't a threat. Not a threat to not not a threat to. Uh, the public safety. In fact, the threat to the public safety is these nuclear weapons. They're putting everything, everything at jeopardy. One of the witnesses that Martha had was uh, an attorney who lives in New York City who works for Pax Christi, the Catholic peace organization. She's an NGO representative. I don't think that's the word, but she works with the United Nations and representing the Pax Christi as a non-governmental organization. Mary Yelenek, and she testified that, uh, you know, kind of the obvious, uh, unless and until we eradicate nuclear weapons, we face the very real threat day by day, minute by minute, those nuclear weapons will eradicate not only 
every one of us involved in this proceeding, but everyone and everything we know and love. Martha has accepted and exercised her own moral responsibility trying to protect all of us from mass death. And it is we who've been we who have ignored, abdicated, and refused to admit that which we are still trying to conceal, going so far as to testifying before the jury, whose members wanted to know whether nuclear weapons are in fact stationed at Kings Bay, the government could neither admit or deny the presence of nuclear weapons embedded in the Brunswick community. And she spoke about that uh, as long as these weapons exist, it's only a question of when, not whether, they will be used intentionally or by accident or mistake through sabotage or theft. And when that happens, the final question that a dying child, children everywhere, not only here in Brunswick, Georgia, but all across the planet, will be asking their parents as they and their parents scream in agony, consumed by raging fire or withering away from radiation or inexorably reduced to skeletal remains resulting from global starvation with the nuclear dust clouds preventing the sun's rays from reaching crop, global crops is why didn't somebody stop this while they had the chance? And the response, the final words of parents dying horrific deaths here in Brunswick, Georgia, and all across the globe, the last human sounds before the extinction of all life on this beloved planet will be, some people did try to stop this, but we prosecuted them, and we locked them away. And of course, Brian, there are other people working to eliminate nuclear weapons, and we've had the, the 50th nation to ratify the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. How was that celebrated by you and your friends? Well, well, it, it, it is something to celebrate. It is, and I think this fits into what's, what's, going, what's been going on with, the, with, these, with this trial and these hearings in Georgia. I was at the, the, the trial a year ago, and the judge dismissed any... The question about whether nuclear weapons are legal, she said, was not relevant to this trial and said, that is a doubtful proposition anyway. It can't be that easily dismissed. As of, I think, believe it's January 22nd that it will be come in force, that the argument that, that nuclear weapons are not illegal is, is you know, well, well, clearly, clearly they are, you know, they have been. But this is a big problem with that argument now that this, that this and this, this is not a small thing. On the other hand, this treaty is not binding on the, on the countries that didn't sign it. And there have been no nuclear countries, none of the NATO countries, uh, none of the, the, um, the countries such as Australia that, that has having uh, defense, con- defense agreements with the United States has signed and ratified this. We still have a lot of work to do. But the question about whether nuclear weapons are illegal, I thought about this when I heard Judge Wood last fall talk about this from the bench saying that they can't be, we can't consider them illegal. There is a very frightening way in which that's true, because one, if we have a nuclear war, if these nuclear wars weapons are used, there is no enforcement mechanism anymore. Now, there were trials at Nuremberg and in Tokyo after World War II that, that, that prosecuted those war crimes committed by the, the Axis during those years. There won't be any war crime trials. You know, there will be... When these nuclear weapons are gone, not only there's going to be no law at all, there's going to be no any kind of human compact or human decency or people trying to be fair with one another, trying to protect life, it's all gone. So there's a way in which this is the judge's proposition is true because you really can't have a law without 
without a enforcement mechanism. It's also very sad to me, and we have to work on a lot of other levels, speaking as a United States citizen, is how many protocols and international agreements and international laws does the United States flout? And I guess that's a rhetorical question because it's impossible to answer because it's like, like just about all of them. You know, the Convention on uh, Child Soldiers, the, the uh, Convention about Chemical Weapons, the whole the Brian Kellogg Pact after World War I that was supposed to outlaw all war altogether. If we are not very, very vigilant and very active, this prohibition against the use of the prohibition against nuclear weapons will be just another another thing that, that a scuff law nation will be able to ignore and overlook. Well, how to prevent that? I think people everywhere around the world have to speak out and in every way that they can. I think the, you know that there there are many things to do. I think the Kings Bay Plowshares people have found one way and many of the others of us too of going to these places and to the clearest way to say that these weapons are illegal and that any law that protects them is is invalid is to uh break those so-called laws invented uh statutes that that are out of not in keeping with the common good and with, with what law ought to be um so, you know supporting and making life and human commerce and human interactions uh, possible and peaceful. These are anti-laws. <laughs> They're maybe an actual uh, positive obligation to, you know, to resist them. What will you be doing in this period leading up to the 22nd of January? Talking to, see, I live within a couple hours of several, several places, and I've got to find out where I'm going to go. There's a, a factory in Kansas City which is about uh, 100 miles from us here, that makes all the non-nuclear parts of the of the nuclear bombs and is right now very much uh, involved in production of new nuclear weapons. This is something that in, well, I believe it was 2015, that, that, that President Obama called for a trillion dollars to be spent in the next years to upgrade the uh, aging stockpile of nuclear weapons. I actually use the word, um, which is, usually applied to things like natural resources to be preserved for other generations, stockpile stewardship. And at a time when citizens of the United States are, for the first time since these statistics have been taken, um, that our life expectancy is getting growing shorter, life extension programs for nuclear weapons, and they are developing new new missiles and new deliveries of, of these uh Weapons and a good part of that work is being done down the highway from us here in Kansas City. Another place I might go is off at Air Force Base near Omaha, which is the, the headquarters of Strategic Air Command. Whiteman Air Force Base in Missouri, it's about the same distance away, is where the B 2 stealth bomber, uh, nuclear power, nuclear armed bombers, which is the, the, maybe the, uh, you know, if it comes to a nuclear war, a very likely uh, first delivery of the, of, of the nuclear weapons would be from Whiteman. So there's a lot of places to go. And there's also um, speaking to neighbors and people you go to church with or people you go to school with. Uh, even in this time of, of uh, COVID restrictions, I think we each have to find a way to, to, you know, to speak about this and to, to reach out to our neighbors. Everything's at stake. And as much as 
I see very clearly the connection between this and the climate catastrophe that's facing us. But everything that we fear that the, if we don't take care of the climate catastrophe now, the things that are that we fear happening in the next uh, years and decades could happen in one moment. You know, this is a time that we need to speak out and be active. What are the restrictions on movement in your area with the pandemic? You know, we live in uh, uh, a rural area with a Republican governor who unfortunately has been, you know, following President Trump's lead and trying to ignore this. And it's only been the last, uh, oh, I think last few days that there's been a, uh, a mask mandate in the state. As official restrictions, they are very, very few. And, but I think that make, makes for us the, the, the personal discipline that much more important. We have Wi-Fi at our house, and we have a neighbor who's a school teacher who doesn't have it, and he's doing part of his teaching online from, from home. And so he he's uh, one of the few people that comes into our house, which is an unusual thing. So we used to be, uh, our home used to be a hopping place. We used to have lots of, almost always have guests in our home, and, uh, and we, we very much miss that. What are the feelings now particularly in a, a Trump area of the United States, about what this man might do or might not do? I don't know. Um, this is an area, rural Iowa, that did go solidly with, with President Trump. I am a little encouraged that we live in a little town of fewer than 30 people, and uh, two of our neighbors that had Trump flags outside their house have taken them down. <laughs> and I hope that means something. I hope that some people are thinking. It's, it's frightening to think about, about what could happen and, the, and the, the, the vacillation going on coming from the White House about what next steps might be. On the other hand, like one thing that you, you've probably heard is that the, the, the Trump administration is refusing to recognize President Biden's you know, winning the election and, and is not cooperating with the Biden campaign uh, on even things like the COVID uh, or international security. I guess that's distressing, but on the other hand, the Trump administration has been doing such an inexpert job at these things that maybe maybe a transition team would not be all that helpful because there isn't, I don't think the new administration has much to learn. I also think there's a sense of relief, a hope that this, this, this will happen peacefully, and uh, even if it doesn't, we're watching... Um, uh, all the signs are that the uh, Biden administration will continue with the worst of the Trump administration, which is what it inherited from the Obama administration, who inherited from the Bush administration. I think that we are, we are looking for, I am looking for, and my friend's looking for, a, and the world needs for the United States to have a more serious change of direction than this election is going to give us no matter what. I think our best case scenario with what this election brought us, leaving the world in, in a dangerous place. And I, I have a hope that out of this, that the United States, that some people are saying with a sense of fear, the United States is losing its place of leadership in the world. And I see that as a silver lining. I still think that the, having the United States being the one you know, that isn't questioned, um, I don't think this has been very good for the planet. And I would say... And I love my country, and a part of loving my country is that I really want to see the United States taking a much humbler role in the world. I see more hope in what 
I see from the uh, Kings Bay Plowshares and for groups like um, ICANN, International Coalition Against Nuclear Weapons, that got you know, working on this, uh, the grassroots work on uh, banning nuclear weapons. That's where I, I see some hope. Brian, if you had to sum up the four years of Trump in a few sentences, what would they be? Narcissism and chaos and hubris. It's been a very frightening time. On the other hand, uh, normal was pretty scary, too, for people who are paying attention, and perhaps you were. So, yeah, it's, it's something that uh, we hope to see the end of, but we have to. But uh, I, I think one of my biggest fears now is that we will see the end of Trump and relax and allow the next administration to, as it appears, that they're being set to do, to stack the Pentagon with war hawks and put the natural resources of our country in the hands of fossil fuel industry and to maybe kinder and gentler, but just but horrible immigration laws. And we are going to see that the the wars have been going on in Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we will see those those continuing unless something more happens than what this any outcome of this election promise. You're on a, a small farm in rural Ottawa. What does winter mean for you there? Our garden is pretty much done. We have a few leeks and a few other things in the, that we're still getting from outside. Making cheese just about every day from our goats. They're filling our cellar with uh, usually our house, even in the wintertime, is full of guests and full of music and talk and uh, good food, and it's very quiet here. I feel um, this is a very, very privileged place where we are to be sheltering in place, and I really recognize that, but I, I miss the activism and the travel that I've been taking part in, and, and also uh, just, I think for Betsy, my partner, and I were raised in the Catholic worker movement, and, and we really are. Hospitality is, is instinctive, and, the, and to be frustrated in that is, is a very, very difficult thing for us. But no, I think uh, of all the people in all the world, we're, we're going to be fine. But it still is a very frightening time, and it's, 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 it will be a dark winter. In the last couple of days, we've had the report of the war crimes alleged war crimes in Afghanistan by Australian SAS soldiers. Would you like to comment on that in relationship to what the American soldiers do? Because you've been to Afghanistan, you've talked to people. It's refreshing and hopeful. It's a horrible thing to hear too, people talking about war crimes, but I think these things the United States has taken for granted all these years, to have them publicly called out and and not by the Russians or Cubans or Venezuelans, but but by by Australia is very much a breath of fresh air. I think we really need to to come to terms with with ourselves for as the United States, especially even when people talk about being against war, they often say, well, we help people and help people and they don't appreciate it or we, we try to help and we don't do any and it doesn't do any good and and that's why people want to get us, get us out of these wars very often we, we have to come to the realization and accept that the united states went into afghanistan this is not a nation building 
project that failed, this is a very successful destruction of a society to control the, the, the resources of that place and to also to feed the war machine and the, the coffers of the corporate war makers. That these are crimes, that we are all responsible for them, whether we are soldiers, even as peace activists. I, I always feel like I need to act not because I'm from in a superior place and innocent of of these crimes, but because I have to act because I am implicated. It is my country and it is the resources of the country where I live. And whether I vote for these politicians or not, they're still, I, I, I don't think that we can use, those of us who are activists can use our activism to wash our hands and try to try to be, portray ourselves as innocent of them, right? We hear these crimes and, and even though I have been against this war since before it started and I've been to Afghanistan many times. I feel a big weight of responsibility for what's going on. And a part of any any healing process is, is you know, is confession. It's just say, you know, yes, yes we did it. Operations. I, I hope this is uh some kind of a breakthrough. I hope that this uh just the fact that these words have, have been said makes a difference. Thank you so much once again. I've been speaking with US peace activist Brian Terrell. Blockade iMark is a platform for voices on the front line of resistance to mining and resource extraction. This year, while mining hasn't moved online, the International Mining and Resources Conference has. And although we can't have the same huge physical presence like we did last year, we will continue resisting this injustice and fighting for a better world. From the 22nd to the 29th of November, we're holding an online counter-conference, Beyond Mining, Protecting Land, Water and Life. To sign up for updates and check out the program for Beyond Mining, go to www.blockadeimark.com. Blockade iMark for Climate Justice, Sunday, November the 22nd to November the 29th. Blockade iMark is a 3CR supporter. 3CR! Next on Tuesday Home Time, Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. First up, Bob, we're talking about an organisation with the acronym FSANZ, Food Standards Australia and New Zealand. Who are they who make up the organisation and what role do they play in Australia and New Zealand? That's uh, Food Standards Australia and New Zealand. It's the government organisation in both countries that sets the standards for particularly the safety of food. And we're saying to them in our recent submissions that they should be concentrating not only on safety, but also on health and well-being as well, and that their um, current focus on trade issues and markets should be removed from their brief so that their primary focus is on the safety, health and well-being aspects of the food supply. They're not then enslaved to the... uh, international, the global indeed, the global uh, big food industry, which is, of course, producing ultra-processed foods full of fat, sugar and salt, which um, are the probable causes of uh, a whole lot of human diseases, systemic diseases, as well as the uh, emerging epidemic of obesity worldwide. So the people who make up this organisation, they're public servants or are they members of industry? Well, they're public servants, uh, the people who actually do the, fi- the fixing, uh, who do the assessments and so on. 
they use what's called regulatory science, which is rather a Mickey Mouse version of science, to decide that a whole raft of different additives, processing aids, flavourings and colourings can go into all sorts of foods. Most particularly of concern, I think, is infant formula. So they're the people out front, and then there's a ministerial forum. Its brief name is the Food Forum, which is made up of the ministers of either health and or agriculture uh, in all the states and territories and in New Zealand. And then there's a standing committee of officials from those same, same governments that do a lot of the legwork on policy and things like that. So for SANS, are the um, Food Stands Australia New Zealand are the bureaucrats with various skills in uh, food uh, area, you know, um, food processing, food chemistry, and now, of course, this food design has come on the scene, you know, creating new food stuffs like the most recent is the plant-based products that appear to be meat was, is a current debate going on in the whole area and whether or not to approve those. We've been battling it out with uh, food standards for a very, very long time and really you'd have to say that the industry dominates its views and its interests and the trade and uh, the global free trade in food is massive. So your big processing companies that make the so-called food or the confectionery and the fast foods and the frozen foods and so on can move their ingredients around the world without too much difficulty, whether they be genetically engineered, irradiated, or full of synthetic chemicals. It's a big responsibility when you're thinking about regulating food. Can you point to some recent hiccups and things that you're totally opposed to what they've done? Well, perhaps we could talk about the current application uh, from the Queensland government to irradiate all fruits and vegetables. They've already got some approved. These fruits and vegetables, tomatoes, mangoes and the like, particularly from the tropics, when they are moved around Australia or sold internationally, many of them are now irradiated. That's being exposed to a high level of um, radiation energy. It doesn't make the food radioactive, but it does have different spin-offs like reducing the um, nutritional value of the food, leaving radiolytic products in some foods. It also extends the shelf life, which, of course, the food industry is very interested in as a characteristic because they can get their food to market and sold at full price without it going bad. But at the moment, the, the application is in for the permission initiated by the Queensland government on behalf of its um, tropical fruit and vegetable industries to have all fruits and veggies uh, available for irradiation. And there are new facilities being installed in places like the fruit and vegetable market here in Melbourne, where they can just trundle pallet loads of, of fruit and vegetables in to be zapped before they go to the, out to the shops. Of course, the pretext is uh, phytosanitary measures to make sure that food is um, safe and healthy to eat, particularly though to um, kill the larvae of fruit fly and other insect infestations that typically get into the uh, fresh fruit supply up in the um, tropical areas of Australia. And of course, food coming in from overseas, many of those now would be irradiated as well. 
There is supposed to be um, a labelling regime, and we've been trying to track what's been, been happening with the 26 fruits and vegetables that were already approved several years ago. And as far as we can discern, there's been no labelling at all. It's up to the states and territories to enforce that law, of course. The laws are made at the federal level. They come in under the Food Standards Act, but they're actually supposed to be enforced uh, by the states and territories with assistance from local government, which, of course, oversees the things like um, restaurants, cleanliness and sanitary conditions, etc., etc. So it's a multi-tiered system. The feds set the policy together with the states. The states are supposed to do the enforcement. And on irradiation, we've seen no evidence of any monitoring enforcement at this stage. And that's one of the things that we're interested to know about. In relation to the current application concerning irradiation, on the 30th of October, which is now two or three weeks ago, the federal regulator suddenly said, OK, we're open for public consultations now and you've got six weeks until the 11th of December to respond. And our response to that was, well, the notice you gave earlier in the year said that this would be dealt with next April, April 2021. It had the proviso on it that if the applicant paid for the process, it could be speeded up, and that appears to be what has happened. However, this is not a time of the year, particularly when we're emerging from COVID, when it's appropriate to ask the public to make submissions about such an important matter. And we are now in debate with the regulator about the appropriateness of giving no prior warning uh, that this um, would be brought on just prior to the holiday season and in the current COVID conditions. And we're arguing to the regulators that they should go with the original timeline, have the public debate next year. This is typical of Fasans. They're always jiggling with the times, the length of time you can have to comment and so on. And it's um, not a new discussion. We've asked for a consultation with them. They haven't replied to our request. So it remains to be seen what will happen. How do activists in New Zealand get on with them? Oh, pretty much the same as we do here, although, of course, it's a smaller jurisdiction. The problem for New Zealand is that uh, it's only one of the 10 governments that are engaged in this discussion about food standards. Of course, they're therefore always in a very distinct minority. The activists in New Zealand um, get on with food standards just about the same as we do here. It's, a, it's a, really a very vexed relationship and what we see at the moment also is that the whole system is being reviewed. Uh, there was a scoping paper put out in uh, yes, early October but it turns out that they had been talking to industry and governments and so on uh, since July even though they said you know this is going to be an open and transparent process we suddenly had um, dropped on us the fact that the whole system of regulation is uh, in the government's scoping paper, at least, to be deregulation for companies to be able to assess the safety of their own foods instead of having them put to for sands at all, as well as deregulation as um, proposed easing up so that markets and trade can be done more quickly and with less surveillance. So the whole thing really is very much in the mould of this Scott Morrison government, which has a deregulatory unit within the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, which is trying to deregulate everything, including 
things like agricultural chemicals, which we now know are dramatically harming the public um, health and safety, and, and the food supply. That's another major argument that we've been having. And last week on Monday, the submissions were due. Uh, we were arguing for a much more open uh, and transparent uh, system than they have at the moment, that the precautionary principle be included because at the moment there's no requirement for government to exercise precaution in the regulations of food and for markets and trade to be given over to other instrumentalities like Austrade or the Department of Industry or Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade which should deal with these things and not muck up the evaluation of safety, health and well-being uh, by having these other marketing issues involved which tend to be dominant in the way that Food Stands Australia now works. Sounds to me, Bob, all the more reason why people should be buying organic food. Indeed. Take irradiation, for example. Um, organic food is not irradiated. It doesn't use agricultural uh, chemicals, synthetic pesticides and so on in its production. It's uh, viable. It does cost a bit more. Yes, the product costs a bit more, but we don't have those degrading industrialised processes applied to our, particularly our fresh fruits and vegetables that um, take a bit of management, extra management and care to make sure that, for instance, the fruit flies um, don't get to the product out in the field. But the notion that you can industrialise everything so you don't care that your fruits and vegetables are attacked by insects that leave their larvae there, then requiring irradiation, you actually do something about bagging the fruit, um, using pheromones and a whole variety of other strategies that are effective in the organic industry being able to deliver excellent products, not at exorbitant prices, in plentiful quantities, um, and provide nutritious and healthy food to people who um, want to look after their health and welfare and well-being uh, by eating well and eating foods that are not industrially produced. Well, looking to South Australia, and unfortunately the government there might have been doing the right thing by COVID, but they're not doing the right thing by GM crops. Yes, well, the Liberal government, when it was elected in 2018, did say that they wanted to overturn the moratorium on the growing of genetically manipulated crops in South Australia and they've um, consistently uh, worked on that over the last several years. The Greens in particular were fantastic in opposing uh, the bills and the regulations and other strategies that the government adopted but um, earlier this year uh, the Labor Party gave in handballing the decision about whether or not GM crops could be grown in South Australia, over to local government, which was, um, of course, a strategy to, for the government to get its way uh, without appearing to uh, have sacrificed the principles of democracy and so on. The local government, um, there are 58 different um, councils in South Australia, of course, had this dumped on them without any resourcing, without any prior warning, in um, March it was of this year and were given six months to consult their communities and particularly their food industries and farmers about whether or not they wanted to uh, remain GM free 
in the end, after all the consultations and the research and so on had been done, 11 councils, particularly those in the wine, grape growing regions, decided that they did want to apply to the government to remain GM-free. However, the government's unwillingness to collaborate became pretty clear pretty soon and uh, it was just um, the week before last that finally all of the council applications were rejected on block. So we've now got the situation where GM canola can, for the first time since 2004, be grown anywhere in South Australia and, of course, there will be other GM crops coming along later. The interesting thing is that part of the strategy was that they had to leave, uh, under the previous law, they had to leave part of the state GM-free and they did that for Kangaroo Island, which has been reaping considerable premiums for a number of years for being a GM-free crop area and selling its premium produce, uh, grains, oil seeds, honey uh, and beverages, particularly into Japanese, but also other Asian markets, and doing very well out of it indeed. So they've been allowed to remain GM-free for the time being. These are benefits, of course, that the whole of South Australia could have gained, and at the moment at least, the GM canola looks like being about 0.2%, 0.2% of the value for the primary production of South Australia. So from next season, which starts around about March, April of next year, those farmers who choose to do so will be permitted to grow genetically manipulated canola and sacrifice the state's good reputation for GM-free, clean, green products for which they could be earning substantial premiums. Over the last couple of weeks, the wine industry has finally discovered uh, what was at stake did make quite a lot of noise along with some of the councils, but to no avail, unfortunately. Looking at our friend Bayer picking up the costs of Monsanto's, like I say, roundup, things aren't going too well for Bayer at the moment. No, they've um, seen a downturn in their in their profits, of course. Um, that's the, th- the thing. The bottom line is always what they're um, focused on. So in the in the third quarter of 2020, they lost three billion dollars on a turnover of around $13 billion. Not travelling too well, but they, of course, are now the biggest um, seed and agrochemical company in the world, so they're hoping to, to bring it back. However, Monsanto, that they bought a couple of years ago for $66 billion, has proved, as one would have expected, to be a, a loss maker for, the, for Bayer. There's now the settlements for the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma of many Americans. Um, There have only been four cases through the court so far, but the one that's been finalised to date awarded $20.5 million. That's pretty considerable when you consider that um, there are 120,000 plaintiffs for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in the USA. So 120,000 times 20 million Uh, would simply send the company broke. So it's been engaged for the last year or so in negotiations to try to buy these people off for um, small change. has done some sort of a deal, but the judge in the original case who ordered the negotiations was not satisfied with the um, settlement that Bayer proposed, which was for around $11 billion for 85,000 of the plaintiffs. So the judge has said that the uh, proposals, which would have 
sidelined anybody who got non-Hodgkins in the future uh, from making a claim was simply unacceptable, has said that he will be restarting many of the cases in the court, probably as class actions rather than individual cases. It's looking a bit grim for Bayer, but of course they're um, extremely well cashed up. The corporation's worth something of the order of $120 billion at the moment. As I said, they're the biggest seed and agrochemical company in the world. They, like Monsanto, have got 100 years of um, bad behaviour. I'm afraid that, um, th you know, despite their setbacks, things may not go too well for the public. The, the other major cases against them as a result of the Monsanto acquisition are about uh, PCBs. Many cities in the USA are contaminated, have their waterways and their earth contaminated with PCBs, polychlorinated biphenyls which is a very, very persistent chemical that was used in electricity transmission systems, particularly over the last century. The company, Monsanto, of course, as with Roundup, knew for a very, very long time that PCBs were um, not degradable, that they would pollute, and indeed they've been found in Antarctica and other very remote spots where they've never been used they're very persistent in the environment and do him impact the health and safety of all living things on the planet. So many cities are now also suing Monsanto slash Bayer to get compensated for that pollution as well. And there will be other cases also. So it's a space to watch. Will Bayer survive the onslaught of cases against it for Monsanto's polluting behaviour over the last hundred years? What do you know about the plan to grow and commercialise GM salmon in the US? Well, that was a recent win for some of our colleagues. You know, under the Trump administration, many, many things have been shortcut, undermined, cancelled, etc., to do with the environment, public health and safety and so on. It now appears that in approving the genetically manipulated salmon, a court which um, the Institute for Food Safety uh, or the Center for Food Safety took to the American courts and was successful, found that uh, the salmon, the, the impacts of the salmon on the environment, particularly on native species of salmon, had been not properly examined, has, uh, for the moment at least, turned around that approval. So particularly the highly endangered wild Atlantic salmon for a little while longer is going to be safe from the predations of its genetically manipulated cousins. It's, it's a win. It's along the way. We keep resisting, and uh, it's great to see that our colleagues in the USA are giving the Trump administration a good run for their money. The question now really is whether things will improve under the new Biden administration. There are some concerns there. I was on a webinar last week with uh, US colleagues who are very concerned about uh, who will end up being the, the minister. They don't call them ministers, do they? The secretary for agriculture in the USA. The woman who's the front runner, Heidi Heitkamp, has got a long, long track record of siding with agribusiness, uh, with the chemical industry and so on. And uh, what our colleagues are asking for is for the secretary of agriculture in the USA have a, somebody with perspectives on regenerative agriculture rather than industrial agribusiness to be appointed in the place. So they're lobbying the Biden administration hard for a good person to be appointed in, in that position. 
And then there are, of course, a couple of hundred other people appointed as well. So we need a, <laughs> a couple of hundred good people with progressive views about organics, about regenerative farming systems, with skepticism about the current industrial system, which is um, raping and pillaging the environment and producing second-rate foods that don't feed people well and are leading to that rash of obesity and uh, public health diseases that um, is now so obvious, particularly in the USA, with its ultra-processed food supply. And what is the push in the US for gene editing and GM at the moment? Well, it's again, it's a deregulatory agenda as it here, is here in, um, in Australia. There's an assumption that the new gene editing techniques are accurate and safe. This, of course, is window dressing that the industry and science have put out there, just as they did with genetic manipulation 30 years ago. And now we've got, of course, academics and industry in unison coming out of the woodwork saying, we got it wrong last time, we weren't proactive enough about deregulation and about ensuring the public that these things are safe and healthy. And so they're going to bat for um, not having gene editing regulated in the food supply in the USA, in contrast to Europe, which is taking an appropriate and a much more precautionary approach. And in our view, of course, we should be aligning ourselves with the Europeans on these matters. But it looks as though our government in the review that's just taking place and also with things like irradiation and gene editing, uh, which is going to be subject of a, um, a policy review and debate over the next six months that they will uh, seek to try to get industry doing its own thing and government not doing much in the way of regulation of the genetically manipulated food supply when the new gene editing techniques come on the scene. Of course, they've now been around for six or seven years and there are no commercial gene edited products, but we expect um, a tsunami of those sometime soon. Okay, well, we'll leave it there for now, Bob, and I'll speak to you for the final time for 2020 in the middle of December. That'll be a terrific pleasure. Thank you very much indeed, Jan. It's always good to talk to you. And to you, Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio A55 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Following the much-anticipated report of potential war crimes by Australian Defence Forces in Afghanistan, I spoke with Dr. Alison Gronowski from the Independent Pacific Australia Network. Alison is also an academic, a journalist, writer and a former public servant and is also the Vice President of Australians for War Power Reform. 
Alison, it has been much anticipated, but it was also fought with tooth and claw with attacks against whistleblowers and journalists. Well, we knew it was coming, of course, for a very long time. And in fact, we in uh, the Australians for War Powers Reform drafted a press release a year ago <laughs> ready for the release of the Brereton Report because we thought it would be out any time then. So you can see how long they've been dragging their feet over this thing. I have to say that although it's taken an awfully long time, you can understand how much work has gone into it, and everything legal of this sort does take a long time. What worries me more, I have to say, is that this is the end of it, and there are going to be at least as many years before we see any prosecution. And that really worries me. There will be report after report after report. And before we know it, the people who are involved, some of them in the chain of command, may well die. Most of them will have retired. And it's all going to look like you know, ancient history, to say nothing of the families in Afghanistan who are awaiting justice for the crimes that have been done to them and their families. So, unfortunately, although we thought it would be out a year ago, we're not going to see any tangible results from this thing for much, much longer. Having said that, the good thing about it is that it has been done by defence itself. And although I'm sure that they could have dug up much more, what they have dug up, they have not apparently tried to conceal, and there's enough in, I mean, in particular, the great long columns alleged offences uh, are enough for us to go on with, even if there are double that number that could have been thrown, and for whatever reason there was insufficient evidence, there, there are a lot of those in the list, as you see, nevertheless it has been done. Now, we can expect, and we're already getting a pushback on this from ex-service people who are saying things like, what would you know? You know, you weren't there. The usual Vietnam War story, which when they put it to Karen Middleton, she said three rotations in, in country and several books. That's what I know. <laughs> I thought that was terrific. And there's probably much, much but, more that we're not being told, isn't there? Yes, without any doubt. And uh, worse than that, the, the fact that so much that we are being told is redacted is a bit of a worry because there are all kinds of details there that we are left to imagine and it may be made just names but it also may be more significant than that, maybe actual acts. Now the only comfort I can draw from that is that the capacity of any, of any future trial of any future accusations against these people uh, has to be protected so that if too much is revealed by the Bergen report, then that could compromise a future uh, evidence in the future. That's something that I have to very, be very worried about. It's always the same when you have a royal commission that people come out with things and then you still have to prove it in court. And so this is that's why it becomes so complicated, and the chances of seeing actual justice 
become slimmer and slimmer. And, you know, we all have our eyes on various prominent figures, but there's no, no assurance at all that we're going to see those actual people face justice at all. And there's so many wars that Australia goes into, and they're all, we say, oh, we have to defend Australia, but all these wars are fought, most of them, many, many kilometres away from home. No, no danger at all to Australia. And they seem to have carte blanche what they can do without having any redress of people to find out actually what they are doing in those countries. Yeah, well, so it seems. But just going back to your point about Australia's wars, we have only ever once fought a war in defence of Australia, only once, and that was the Second World War, which if we had played our cards differently earlier on, we might not even have had to have fought in any way. We might not necessarily have made an enemy out of Japan. But that's speculative. But every other war in which Australia has been involved has been on behalf of one or other of our major allies. And the enemies in those wars were chosen for us by either Britain or the United States or both. And so the real answer is Australia doesn't want any further involvement in this sort of expeditionary warfare to distant countries, as you say, is for us to simply make it clear to our allies that we are not obliged to fight in those wars. We are not obliged to go to distant countries and fight against people who are not our enemies. And as a result of that, you have people, you have Australian service people working, risking their lives in countries where, risking their lives in countries where the, the people they are fighting against, they can't understand what threat they pose to Australia. Because, indeed, they pose none. And so if there's bad morale in the special air services, you can understand why. Because they have no particular purpose of being there. They don't even know what success would look like. The original invasion of Afghanistan was done because the United States wanted to punish al-Qaeda for the attacks on New York and Washington. Al-Qaeda vanished from Afghanistan, and they still stayed there. And they went on fighting, and they had to find someone to fight, so they fought the Taliban. Now, why are they fighting the Taliban, for God's sake? It's the same as fighting the Viet Cong. These people are nationalists who want to control their own country, and it's their business who controls Afghanistan, not ours. And yet we stay there. And you can well understand why an SAS service person being told to go to war every day would ask why and who against. What for? Why are they our enemies? Why do I need to kill them? Why do I need to expose myself to danger or indeed to allegations of war crimes for killing people whose enmity to Australia didn't exist until we started attacking them, for God's sake? And the people there probably don't even know where Australia is, many of them. Well, those who have tried to migrate here certainly do. Some of them are locked up. True. But, you know, the, the, they know, all right, because the Afghans, and in fact there's been some very articulate Afghan commentary on this in recent days, uh, particularly from human rights people, but the Afghans have long experience of colonial wars 
historically fought over for decades, indeed centuries, by the British. And on every occasion, they have simply wasted them out, given them a hard time, and waited until they went away and then took their country back. And that is exactly what we're doing this time. Now, the only good thing I have to say for Donald Trump is that he says that he is going to get the American troops, or most of them, out of Afghanistan and Iraq before he leaves office. Well, I hope he does. It would be a very positive step. And yet, will Australia, will Australia come out? Not until the Americans do. Why? Because we're there, because the Americans say we have to be. And even when the Americans say they're going to leave, we still hang on in case they change their minds. I mean, I cannot think of a more vacuous foreign and defence policy than what we have. It just makes no sense at all. It contains no independence. It contains no strategy and no understanding of what the situation is or Australia's obligation. Australia is not obliged by the Andes Treaty to fight in Afghanistan. Absolutely not. And Australia is not obliged by the US alliance to do that either. And if the Americans want to have a war, we have to look at it and say, whether we're in fighting or not. And if we're not, we just tell them. And the best thing that could happen out of that would be for the Americans to find that if they haven't got a coalition for the war, then they haven't got a war. And that would be a very positive development. And also it's the decision to go to war. Who makes that decision? It's not a very democratic decision, is it? You mean in Australia? Yes. Yeah. Well, as you know, the constitution in Australia allows the Prime Minister virtually on his or her own to say to the Defence Minister, send the troops to war. And it happens. Now, that is because we have an, a colonial constitution. We, the Canadians and the New Zealanders, have them. We haven't revised our constitution, we haven't had a, a referendum to change it, and we haven't had a revolution. Most countries that have had revolutions have changed their constitutions and modernised the war powers, as we call them, to give control to whatever legislature they have to have a parliament or whatever they may have to consider a, a proposition from the executive to go to war and vote upon it after a debate in their parliament or whatever it may be. And Australia, New Zealand and Canada do not have that. The British have been trying to change the North, but because it's done by convention, not by law, it hasn't entered into legislation. But what happens in Australia, and it could happen again at any time, is that the Prime Minister goes to the National Security Committee Cabinet and there are selected ministers appointed by the Prime Minister who owe their jobs to him, and they say in his, his or her proposal that we send the troops to war, they just say yes, of course. And there is no discussion. It can take five minutes, as Bob Menzies bragged, who had done uh, in relation to going to war in Vietnam. It can take five minutes. That's it. Now, you say, is it democratic? Hardly. Because, in fact, not even all of the parliament has voiced it. So the 
uh, various elected representatives can go back to their electorates and say, well, I didn't vote for it. I wasn't asked. I don't know anything about it. I leave it to the, uh, the top brass, as you might say. I leave it to the defence minister, the prime minister, the foreign minister, and so on. They know what they're doing. They see the secret documents. They know who our enemies are. They know what the Americans want, and they know why we have to go to war. I don't know anything about that. Now, what Australians for war powers reform are trying to do is get a change in that, not to change the Constitution, that would be altogether too hard, not to have a revolution that would be altogether too dangerous and unpredictable, but to simply change Section 8 of the Defence Act, which allows the Defence Minister to administer the armed forces in such a way as to send them to war if that's what they want. Now, what we want is for there to be a requirement before that happens for a debate and a vote in both houses of parliament to decide on whether the troops should be sent to war. We're not saying there would never be a situation in which they should go to war. There may be, but it should be subject to democratic scrutiny. And once they're there, there should be an obligation regularly to report back to the Parliament that sent them on the progress of the war. And once the war is over, if it is over, there should be a, a public independent inquiry, like the British had with Philpott, into the war, how it was fought, what its results were, and, and in effect, whether it represented value for money. Now, we think the, t- the voters of Australia, the taxpayers who pay for this stuff, would be rather grateful for this kind of change because wars are the greatest wasters of public money. And at the time when we're being told we can't afford all sorts of other desirable things like health and education because of the pandemic, if we weren't fighting all these wars, we'd have a lot more money to play with. And we wouldn't make enemies out of people which just result in more wars. Okay, the defence industries would would suffer, and that would not be a great loss to the world, I suppose. Focus on the Australian Defence Force for a few minutes. The, as people say, if you train teenagers to kill, they will kill. But this is beyond, far beyond training teenagers to kill. These are the alleged crimes. Uh, some of them are absolutely horrific. What does that say about the upper echelons who are actually training these young people to commit these alleged crimes? In a way, I understand what you're saying. People self-select. It's a volunteer army. If people self-select to join the Defence Forces, they already know that part of their job could be to be killers, right? And they're training. And the requirements for them to get in in the first place require them to show that capacity. And so when they get there, it would be ridiculous not to, for them not to be trained to be killers. And that's exactly what happens. That's what a defence force is. They're not trained to be diplomats like me. My idea of, of the best, best way to deal with the war is different. You have the conference. And that's what diplomats are good at. I would much rather that people were not trained to fight wars at all. But they are, 
and you can't be surprised that when they're sent somewhere like Afghanistan, they behave in the way that they are trained. Okay, they've been trained also to understand the rules of law or the rules of war and that there are limitations in what they can do. But if they are not sufficiently supervised and restrained by their own commanders, then what you get is the training that they have been given coming to the surface. And furthermore, we talk about young people, there's a culture, there's a war culture that we are exposed to, mainly American, I have to say, but historically Britain too, heaps of glorification of war and all the thrill-seeking behaviour, um, particularly inculcated in little boys, and by, by video games and things of this sort, just making them think that the way to deal with a, a conflict problem is to blow someone away. Well, this is also, I mean, this is it's a problem enough in itself, but it's also now becoming somewhat outdated, if I could put it that way, because countries like ours don't want to waste these expensively trained human soldiers that they have. So what we're now doing is we're doing all sorts of remote ways of doing war. We're doing proxy wars by having other people fighting for us, and we're doing artificial intelligence and drones and things of this sort that can be used instead of people to fight your wars for you. And in a way, it's even more frightening because there's no human or, or little human intervention in these processes. And somebody sits in a remote office somewhere in a safe place and presses a button and, hey, bingo, you know, you get uh, collateral damage. And so there you are. That could be the way of war of the future. And the old ways where people, where soldiers can be held accountable for war crimes and so on, will actually disappear. Because we won't even know who's done this or where they are or what they're doing. And, and whole universes, shall we say, or cities could be wiped out anonymously in these ways unless this sort of capacity to wage war is controlled and dealt with. And at the moment, the countries that have the capacity to do it have no interest in seeing it controlled by any kind of international organisation. Let's talk about what you might call the whistleblowers. You've got the Australian ABC journalists raided and threatened with prosecution in jail. You have a criminal prosecution against David McBride, who could spend years in jail. Yeah, I'm glad you raised that. We don't even know how many other such secret arrests and interrogations there have been. We know about what's going on with Witness K. We know about Witness J. We know about Bernard Tillery, Witness K's lawyer. And we know about David McBride. Now, David McBride, I don't know whether you have, but I have not seen any reference to him in any of the publicity about the Afghan war crimes. And yet it was David McBride, a former army lawyer, who blew the whistle on this years ago and did so because he had gone up the chain of command in the army, as he should, and complained to his superiors that there were war crimes being committed in Afghanistan and he was given the brush off. Now, he was given the brush off, he must have been, by 
the very people from whom we are now hearing, oh, this was so terrible. Oh, we didn't know anything about it. Oh, how awful. They knew all right because he told them. He and others told them. The very people who are at the top and who have been spared, it seems, from any kind of responsibility by Brereton, just as we expected they would be, are not mentioning David Messiah. Now, if the ABC journals, whose premises were raided by the police, got off and no further charges are being pursued against them, they were the ones who received David McBride's information. Surely we should hear something about what is the fate of David McBride. And if all this hand-wringing about responsibility and how we're all responsible and we mustn't ever allow this to happen again, blah, 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 is to mean anything, then they must repair the injustice that has just been done to David McBride right now. If we're sticking merely to the military stuff, then McBride is the one who is most relevant. But what has been done to Julian, and of course he now his issue now looks like you know being forgotten for a little while because it, it drags on while we're busy talking about some other crisis in our own military, and his is not a military issue. Nevertheless, what he did was the same as McBride did. He told the truth about what, in, in his case, American military were doing in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere, and he published it in WikiLeaks. He used their own documents to do it, incontrovertible, and the fact he also revealed, collaborated with others, in revealing torture proceedings at Abu Ghraib. Now, we are saying that what went on in Afghanistan at the hands of Australian SAS was as bad or worse than Abu Ghraib. If that is the case, and it was Julian Apart and others who revealed this, then what is he doing in jail? I'm hoping, without much optimism, I'll have to say, that President Biden may take a different view on Julian from Trump, who took no view at all, but certainly didn't intervene to stop the extradition proceedings against him. I'm hoping that somebody will talk to Biden and say, look, this is outrageous and it has to be stopped. But given what Biden has said in the past, he called Julian a high-tech terrorist or something like that. It means that he is liable under the Patriot Act to be found guilty in the United States. What really has to happen is Biden is going to have to intervene. Now, he won't because he's got plenty of other things on his mind and also he's made his position clear on Julian. So here is yet another opportunity for our government, for, for Morrison in particular, to raise this issue quietly and say, look, we have a lot of feeling in Australia about this. It would be a good idea if you could drop the expedition proceedings, which are flawed from top to bottom, and let this man out of this prison where his life is in danger. How long do you think it will be before this goes to court? here in Australia? I haven't been following the British and New Zealand ones very closely, but my understanding is that the New Zealand ones were opposed by the New Zealand defence and were only, they were dragged sort of unwillingly into that process. The British ones were, uh, as a result of the same sort of media 
revelations that we have had. And my understanding in Britain is that those are still those inquiries are still ongoing as they are in New Zealand. Now, how long they will continue before they come out with their reports, I really don't know. The British ones also are running have run into the same sorts of responses, I gather, as we are beginning to see in Australia. You send our people there, they're good soldiers, they're doing what they have to do on behalf of Britain. You don't know, you weren't there, etc., etc. It's not their fault. The main problem in all three countries will be how far the blame is taken up the chain of command. And on that, I can only speak about Australia. And what I say on that is that this is a very, very long time ago when these events started to happen. And there were junior officers in the field then who are now in very senior positions in the armed forces. And they must have known what was going on. And as they rose in the ranks and were perhaps not even redeployed, they must have heard what was happening. They did and said nothing. And that means that there are plenty of them still ducking for cover, while the people who have been named, people on the ground and their commanders in the field, are the ones who, as we could have expected, are going to cop what penalties there are. But I do think that when General Campbell says we are all responsible, I do hope that he means that literally and that the responsibility and any penalties there are for that will go all the way up to people who knew and did nothing. And thanks to Dr. Alison Broyowski. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and the Nara people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Algorithms have become these gatekeepers to opportunity. They're already deciding who gets hired, who gets health care, how long a prison sentence someone serves. And what I didn't realize is that a lot of these algorithms haven't been vetted for accuracy. We don't even know how accurate they are. They often run on what's popular, and we all know what's popular isn't always good. And they haven't been vetted for racial bias and for gender bias. 
I had no idea the scope of invasive surveillance, the, the preciseness to which they can predict our behavior, and how vulnerable all of us can be to sort of predatory practices because of these algorithms. And so we need some protections in place as citizens. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio at 5 a.m. on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Unfortunately, the people of Western Sahara, who actively oppose their occupation by Morocco, expect harassment, arrests and much more. And one of the prominent opposition organisations is Western Sahara Equip Media, made of young people who secretly film others and the security forces violence against people who dare to demonstrate and send their evidence worldwide. But last Saturday, payback for the president and one of the journalists of the media group. A day of celebration turned into a day of terror. I'm speaking with Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. The bride is someone that we know here at 3CR. The journalist that you interviewed, Jan, a little while ago on this program called Nazha Al-Khalidi, a journalist for the group in Western Sahara, occupied Western Sahara, called Akeep Media, or Media Team. She was getting married to another member of the same media team called Ahmed Etanji. The wedding ceremony was had started in one of their houses. I'm not quite sure which one. Then it was broken into, the, the house was broken into by police or security forces, all of them, There's a lot of different security forces in occupied Western Sahara. They broke everything up and they cut the electricity. They must have been together for the ceremony. But in Saharawi tradition, the bride hides and goes away and the bridegroom has to come and find her. So they were later in separate houses. Then both houses, the streets were cut off, the Uh, they were completely the uh, houses surrounded by the different security forces. There's the police, there's the gendarmes, and about two or three different kinds of security. I don't know about military, but sometimes military come involved as well. It's a very complex situation with the forces of law and order in West, occupied Western Sahara. So basically, uh, their their lives are. Occasion which uh, should have been a celebration and happiness and full of love and jollity, completely wrecked by the occupying forces. They're not the only ones to be singled out. All kinds of other things are happening to other people, but uh, this is the story that connection has connection with uh, Radio 3CR and more particularly with Tuesday Home Time, bound to be to do with their work. They have. Had a, a lot of retributions from from uh, the fact that they are reporting uh, on what is happening. Uh, she, she's very happy for for us to be talking about it, but uh, if the uh, Moroccan forces find out that she's on radio uh, abroad, uh, things will probably get worse. I mean, the, she, she's been reporting fearlessly for quite a long while, 
but this, the occasion that we interviewed her about was when she was a, a court case that was connected with the fact that she had been taken by the police when she was filming the, their repression of, an, of a demonstration or a peaceful demonstration, just people with placards shouting slogans. And the police came and beat the participants and Nata was recording all of this on her mobile phone. So she was knocked to the ground and the phone was taken. And she was taken into custody and and so on. But it did end up with a law case, which I suppose means that it's not completely... In, uh, they're not doing all of this with complete impunity. It would be better if the legal system was completely detached from the political system and the security system, but that's not the case. However, it's still something that it goes to court. And so she's, and she's been continuing to, to do this kind of work. She wrote an article for the ORSA uh, Electronic Bulletin about how COVID was unfolding in the occupied territory. So she's uh, continued to do her reporting and and her reporting for us as well. And her husband? He appears in a film that uh, some people will have seen. We've shown it twice now, I think, in uh, in Melbourne. And it's called Rifles or Graffiti. And it was shown as part of the Refugee Week in 2018 and again as a film with the Latin American and Spanish language film group called Filmoteca last year and it's about the same thing that we're talking about, the undercover journalism that is being carried out despite all the repression and retribution in occupied Western Sahara. Ekip Media is one of the ones that has been a, a successful group. They're, they're, they're by no means the only one, but uh, they publish. They aim to publish everything in in five languages: in French, Spanish, English, Arabic. On oh, Hassaniya, of course, their own language. There's another film called um, Three Cameras that was done about them as well. That and it's the story of a Swedish group that was giving them cameras so that they could record all of these events and each one gets confiscated in under different circumstances. That's the, basically the story of the film. Well, Ahmed Etanji, he is now, I think, the director of this group, her husband, and um, I think I can say husband, he's not just the groom. I think they, they she said they have got the documents, uh, is what she said when I said they, they had got the ceremony had happened. They have got a, a managed document now. It's the celebration that was being interrupted. But Etanji, her husband, is the uh, the director of the media group. So I guess he would be in the firing line and he would know that. But you'd think that it would be quite nice if they could just let people have enjoy one day that's a special day in their lives but that's not the thinking of the occupier. Eh? And if it, of course, it's got nothing to do directly with the fact that the ceasefire has now ended. Moroccans started firing on uh, Sahrawi demonstrators right down in the south of uh, Western Sahara, in the border with uh, Mauritania, where uh, they built a road that 
shouldn't be there, according to the uh, peace settlement, the ceasefire settlement. The Zaharis were protesting, and they were particularly protesting because uh, it was their, the products of their land that were being exported to Mauritania and the rest of Africa. But the uh, Moroccans uh, fired on them, and that broke the ceasefire. Now the um, the country is back at war. You know this, this has justified the unleashing of incredible security response to to the human rights defenders and activists in the occupied territory. How all the different houses of well-known people have been uh, surrounded, and so it's not just uh, this uh, happy couple we call them, don't we? That's a, a a catchphrase, which unfortunately they can't be all that happy today. Okay, Kate, we'll we'll follow this up next week. See what's been happening. And that was Kate Lewis from the Australia Western Sahara Association. And indeed, we will be speaking to Kate again next week. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op is open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. Visit www.foefood.org slash click collect to place your orders. Or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter. Are you looking after someone aged, a person with a disability, or someone with a mental illness or medical condition. As a carer, you can access free support online, over the phone or in person. Carer Gateway is an Australian government initiative providing counselling, advice, respite and much more. Find out how Carer Gateway can help you. Call 1800 422 737, Monday to Friday, or visit carergateway.gov.au. Carer Gateway. Connecting carers to support services. A 3CR supporter. And the final facts for hard times with Joan Coxedge. And as I say, right at the last bit, I was like a last hooray about the quote from Chomsky, corporate vandals, news rubbish... Rwanda, and I had a big piece on 20 years on from 1975 to 1995, a history of what happened during that time, and a quote. Free elections are now only about choosing the source with which will be eaten. I think that sums everything up rather nicely, Jan, don't you? It does. And then you think 25 years on, Joan, what's changed? Oh, it's only got worse. It hasn't changed, but it's certainly got worse. I think you'd have to agree. Just to finish, Joan, what were your sources? Because you 
you had quite a number of people overseas as well as here. I did, I did. And I was also, I think there was more information available despite the, you know, the internet and what you can learn from that, which is very, very helpful, no doubt about it. But I did get a lot of stuff from overseas. And I was, you know, there were good people in America and I was a part of a, a group there and they used to send me, you know, very helpful newsletters and stuff like that, which you could never get here. I also did research when I was in America because, um, as I say, it was one of the ironies, if you like, that although they're a pretty shitty country, you could get access to information there that you simply cannot get here. Cannot get here. And I had friends in Britain and other places because I used to send the newsletter all over the place. And I, I got a very positive response. People really liked it. And I was sort of sorry to finish it, but I just couldn't keep it going. You know, and I, I had a mailing list of, of quite a few hundred people. And it was something I thought was well worth doing because I think, you know, people get into Parliament and do bugger all. They get sucked into the system completely and that's something I just was determined to resist. As you can imagine, it made me many enemies amongst my parliamentarians, especially in the upper echelons. I don't think John Cain ever quite forgave me. But never mind, it's all right. And, of course, Joan, you found these things firsthand. You travelled widely. Always. Always first hand. Absolutely. And I think it does help a lot when you go and see for yourself these places. It dispels a lot of the myths and a lot of the prejudices you might have and, and plain wrong facts about them. Because, you know, basically everywhere you go, you really find most people, all they want is a decent life for, the, for their children. You know, enough food to eat and a decent health care system. You know, once you get behind the upper echelons, that's what most people want for their families and so on, some safety. And people are nice. Everywhere you go, ordinary people are lovely. Of course, a special place for you was Cuba. Yes, I I feel very, very sad about Cuba because they've been punished even more, of course, by Trump. He's up the ante on the, uh, you know, on the, the, uh, you know, the way they've stop them being getting access to to anything it, it's just disgusting how much they've lost in revenue and access to drugs access to all the things they need and it's a deliberate policy to uh, sort of create an uprising among the cuban people i think that's the, the the aim of trump and his cohorts you know they they just want to see an uprising but so far the people have stood firm but it's made life very very hard for them but this, this is a, just a disgusting policy, quite deliberate. And it started when, uh, soon after Fidel Castro took over as the president. And when he, when he was first um, took over, he uh, actually went to Washington to sort of make friends with them. They wouldn't even see him, wouldn't even see him. So he came back home and got on with it. But the blockade has been absolutely disgraceful. I think it's one of the nastiest in the world. And it's a form of warfare, and that's what it, you'll notice. America does that all the time. You know, it sets up all sorts of uh, blockades for people to have access to the things they need. It's doing it in Iran now. And you've only got to see what they've done to the Palestinians over those years. Oh, shocking. Yes, well, of course, the Israelis get huge amounts of money to buy arms, and the Palestinians have got less and less. I was there, actually, in... Uh, Oh, God, it would have been sometime in the 90s. And it broke my heart to see what was happening there. And the 
the arrogance of the Israelis towards them. And we actually stayed in East Jerusalem, and that was an enclave of Palestinians back then. I think I don't know what's left of it now. But yes, you do see firsthand what's going on, and I think it does definitely influence your outlook and your policies. And the main thing is to talk about it, to tell people about it. It's no good sort of sitting back and, you know, thinking thoughts with yourself. You've got to, you know, talk and write. I've always found writing a very powerful weapon. I'm old now. And I can't do much else. I can't really get out and protest, but I can write. And I think it is a very, very potent weapon. I'm sure you agree, Jan, like your program. Well, I'm sure, Joan, that a lot of people congratulated you over the years for your hard facts for hard times. Yes, they did. They, 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 and, of course, I've written books as well as that, which has gone into more detail. I mean, when I went to Central America, it was in uh, 1984, and I was so moved and so appalled by what I saw there in uh, particularly in El Salvador I just felt obliged to write a book and I did and I called it thank God for the revolution and that was uh, again coming face to face with fascism it would have been like walking into Nazi Germany in the 1930s with death squads that were just slaughtering and torturing people right in front of your eyes Bodies found in the streets in the morning, you know, and we walked into the middle of it all. And these death squads were trained by the Americans. Now, you don't read about that here, but you certainly found out about that when I was there. Epitomised America's attitude to the world, really. Mm. And it varies, but it's always there. Exactly. Always there. All right, Joan, well... Thank you for all that, and good luck. Yes, and I'll speak to you later on. Writer and activist, Joan Coxidge. Tune in to Imagining Disability Justice, 3CR's International Day of People with Disability broadcast on 3rd of December. From 7am to 7pm, we're making space for disabled visionaries to discuss the pandemic year that was, abolition and building a better future. For details, visit 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2020. Three CR Community Radio, eight five five AM. Dr. Sue Wareham, the president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, has, with many others, been campaigning against the controversial 500 million expansion of the Australian War Memorial. Today, the focus is on the relationship between the War Memorial Council and those possibly subject to allegations of war crimes, following a call by former Defence Force Chief Chris Barry calling for the council to be cleaned out. I spoke with Sue yesterday, and Sue, there's a number of issues relating to Australia and fighting other countries' wars. But first, that call by former Admiral of the Australian Defence Force, Chris Barry, 
to clean out the War Memorial Council. For those who didn't see the report or his writings, can you summarise and then give us your assessment of his line? Yes, what Admiral Chris Barry called for uh, recently, a day or two ago, made a lot of sense. And I'm paraphrasing, um, but he, he made the point to the effect that the War Memorial Council needs to shake up, that it's not administering the memorial in the way it needs to be. And I'm paraphrasing here and adding my own interpretation, of course. Um, but the War Memorial has had a a pretty strong focus on this warrior culture, which seems to be a big part of the problem of what's gone wrong in Afghanistan. And the memorial has promoted Australian soldiers who have done very good, glorious, brave deeds in warfare. Um, in particular, one former SAS soldier uh, who's the subject of, who is a subject of the Burton investigations and seems likely will be charged with war crimes. So when the memorial makes a feature of the glorious and brave deeds that are done in wartime, when those really uh, brave brave deeds and, and the people who are associated with them come crashing down in terrible, terrible disrepute, then it's a big problem for, for all of us. And of course, the memorial has to face this. But the, the more fundamental problem at the memorial is that it's been focusing very heavily on how Australia fights wars, what's actually been um, been going on in the heat of battle, but not on the much, much bigger and, in fact, more important context of why we go to war, why were we in Afghanistan in the first place, what was the political decision-making, who made the decisions, um, what are the outcomes for the people there? What are the outcomes for the people of Af- Afghanistan? Now, if the memorial is going to, t- as well as commemorate our losses, is going to tell the stories of warfare, then it needs to tell those stories of the much, much bigger picture and not just of brave deeds that are done. So that's been a, um, a serious criticism from a number of people of the War Memorial for some time. Are you concerned about the makeup or the composition of the council? Yes, there is a problem with the composition of the War Memorial Council. It's heavily skewed towards military or former military people who, of course, have a valid and very strong interest in the War Memorial, but they're not the only people who do. It would be really hard to find anyone in Australia who doesn't have some personal link to wartime loss sometimes at a very, very deep and close level. So the War Memorial Council needs to much more clearly and accurately reflect the Australian people who are not mostly um, military or or former military people. So, um, yes, there is a a problem with the composition of the council. There is also a problem with the, let's say, the aloofness of the council. It's very hard to get any dialogue with the council about important matters that relate to the War Memorial. Our organisation, Medical Association for Prevention of War, has tried to have a discussion with the War Memorial Council on the important issue of funding at the memorial by war profiteers, weapons companies that give money to the memorial. We've been denied permission to even speak with the council about that. And these are really important issues and they, the council needs to be much more representative of the Australian people, but much more open to dialogue with the Australian people. 
Is this just in recent times that you're having these problems or has it been a long term? It's been for some time, certainly over some years. And the problems seem to become much more much more obvious, I guess, um, with the start of the World War One commemoration in 2014, the centenary. And that's when Australia's, well, let's say jingoism, a lot of promotion of the glory of war, that's when it really kicked in in 2014, looking back a century ago and totally... Uh, absolutely overlooking all of the lessons that we might have learned from World War One, but just focusing on war as a glorious thing for the nation. In fact, the birth of the nation and all this, um, and a lot of uh, ridiculous characterisation that was going on at the time. So, yes, the problem with the war war has been going on for some years. The former, the immediate past director of the war war, Dr. Brendan Nelson, did seem to be a big part of the problems in raising these issues at the War Memorial. He dismissed his critics, didn't want to have a bar of any of the criticisms of the direction that War Memorial was taking. And it was under um, Brendan Nelson that the proposal for a half billion dollar expansion was made uh, and really took off. And that expansion really, if it proceeds, which has not yet been decided, um, would really exaggerate a lot of the problems that have been identified uh, thus far. One of the um, very significant concerns that's been raised in relation to the proposed expansion is the incorporation of live feed from the Defence Department, which means the Defence Department bringing into the War Memorial um, images, footage, um, stories, etc., of what's happening on the, um, in a, well, probably not in Afghanistan now, but in places that Australia is at war right now. And this is not appropriate for, war, for a war memorial. It's a memorial. It's not a, uh, a recruitment or a propaganda place for our defence forces to tell the people what's happening right now. This is totally inappropriate. But that's one of the concerns that was raised um, in relation to the proposed expansion. I have read that part of that $500 million would be used to talk about Afghanistan and what happened. With this inquiry taking such a long time, and it's believed it will take a long time before it gets to any courts, is there is a concern that the full story of Afghanistan won't be told and can't be told? Yes, and I think the time to tell the full story if, of Afghanistan is after the war is over. It's not appropriate to do it when the war is still going on and especially if and when Australian troops are still there. That's just in, entirely uh, the wrong way and the wrong the wrong way and the wrong time to tell the story of Australia's involvement in wars because the risk is that it's going to be heavily politicised um, and what the government wants the people to know about the war is what will be told at the time. But we need uh, we need to be telling these stories after after the event when historians and others have had time to put together what actually happened, what was the context, who made the decisions, were the decisions valid, and what were the impacts on the people of Afghanistan. That's an absolutely key one. 
that doesn't get told, certainly not at the War Memorial and not much in other places except by civil society. So all information on all of these things needs to be gathered after the event. It can't be done while things are still happening on the ground and it's inappropriate for the War Memorial to try to do that. Just staying with that 500 million extra, and of course we've got to understand that it is extra. They also get a huge amount of money every year. How far off is that decision that it will be allowed? Well, the decision has not been finally approved yet, although the Wong World Director and others uh, talk about it often as if it is approved. It's just a done deal, um, and there's a certain arrogance there. But uh, no, it's not been fully approved yet. The decision is before the Public Works Committee of the Australian Federal Parliament and that body has not yet approved the expenditure. Uh, there's heritage approval which has not yet been granted and that's given by the Department of Agriculture, Water and the Environment which is the department that handles heritage matters under the EPBC, Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act. So those two approvals, the public works, the expenditure and the heritage approval have not yet been granted. So we, um, we, we don't know when those decisions will be made, whether it will be uh, this year, early next year, we don't know. And presumably the Brereton report is going to have a fairly strong impact, especially on the Public Works Committee. I mean, for the committee to approve a proposal which is really entrenching the very problems that the Brereton report has highlighted, then that would that would be a huge mistake on the part of that committee and I think the parliamentarians on it uh, must be aware of that. So we wait to see. And I'd imagine it's very important that the issues surrounding the, the War Memorial, that they get it right because it's a go-to place for children, school children all over Australia now, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's a very good point. Jan, when school groups come to Canberra, which is a great thing for school groups to do, there are two places, my understanding is there are two places that they must visit if they want to receive federal a federal subsidy for their trip. One of them is the um, Parliament House, quite appropriate, and the other is the War Memorial. So, um, yes, school groups that come here do go to the War Memorial um, in fairly large numbers. And you're absolutely right, it's critical that the War Memorial gets this right because if they are giving to children the message that war is a pretty exciting thing to do, you do heroic things and you might get a medal for it afterwards, then that's a really, really bad message and irresponsible message to be giving to children because it's not telling the story of what war is all about and what war is like for the even for the defence personnel caught up in it, but let alone for the civilians caught up in it. So yes, it is critical that the War Memorial gets this right. The Memorial has a children's activity zone called Discovery Zone, which is pretty shockingly irresponsible in itself because it claims to teach children about war and yet it's really a play area, literally a play area. Children can go in there and play at various things. They can play in a World War I trench. They can play in a Vietnam-era helicopter. They can play in a Cold War submarine looking for Soviet submarines. So to present this as the nature of warfare, it's just irresponsible. So the War Memorial's 
approach to the education of children also needs to change. And another concern of yours is that Australia goes to war and has gone to war far too easily. Can we look at who makes the decisions and why? Yes, it's another huge area that really needs examination in the wake of the, in the light of the Brereton report. The decision to go to war in Australia should be made by our parliament, except if Australia is under, um, under attack, literally, and we need to do something immediately, uh, except in that instance, which is not the situation for the wars that Australia generally gets involved in. Decisions for war should be made by our parliament. We elect them to make the big decisions, and yet the reality is that decisions for war in Australia are made generally by the Prime Minister alone, possibly with the support of a few cabinet ministers. And I say support because a cabinet minister is not not generally likely to stand up to a Prime Minister who's hell-bent on going to war. So to have such a momentous decision made by one person alone is a recipe for disaster, for error. And that's what's happened literally in 2003. Prime Minister Howard made the decision that Australia would be involved in the illegal invasion of Iraq and the attacks on Afghanistan. Similarly, that was Prime Minister Howard. And the problem was just one person making this decision. And even, of course, this person has briefings from various departments, but uh, notably not briefings, uh, well, not adequate briefings on the humanitarian impacts. But the problems with one person virtually making the decision is that the big, big questions can get sidelined. Questions about um, what's the goal? What are we aiming to do? What's the strategy? How are we going to do it? What are the likely costs for our defence personnel, them too, but also what are the likely costs for the civilians where we go and fight our wars and who's going to look after the civilians? Who's going to look after the, in Afghanistan, millions of people displaced? Who's going to care for them? Who's going to provide for their health care, shelter, sanitation, all of that? These questions are critical and yet they, if they do get asked at all before the Prime Minister makes the decision, then there aren't any adequate answers to them. But these are the sorts of things that a country needs to look at before we get engaged in war. So yes, Australia does go to war far too easily and that needs to change. We need war powers reform so that that decision is made by Parliament. You mentioned then the impact on the people of Afghanistan in particular. That's one thing that this war crimes inquiry has brought up that there actually are people in Afghanistan. They've got faces for them. They've got names for them. They've got what happened to them. And that's not something we normally hear about. No, it's not. We do hear sort of um, piecemeal accounts by NGOs, organisations and individuals um, who do an absolutely outstanding job trying to look after these people. But the scale of the problems the civilian problems that are caused by warfare are just so vast that they should be centre, up front and centre of what, what we hear about wars. But what we hear from the Australian government is rich, richly lies about um, the progress, progress of our wars. The Australian government have told us there was progress when there wasn't. There are lies and secrecy um, and very little about those who are most disproportionately affected, who are the the civilians. 
that's the story of war that really needs to come out. So the Brereton report, yes, has helped to highlight that. There's a, a risk that the focus following the Brereton report is going to be only on, well, primarily on Australia, the impacts for Australia, but the focus needs to be also on the impacts for Afghanistan and, as you said, Jan, for all the civilians, the four, over 40,000 civilians killed in the war in Afghanistan, what about their families? What's it been like for them? Let's look at the wide circle of grief, grief, hatred, economic disadvantage that's been brought about by not only by those tens of thousands of deaths, but by all the injuries of the Afghan people. What about them? Who's looking after them? How are they faring? So we need to look much, much broader than just the impact on Australian troops, although that's very important. That does need to be part of, part of the picture but it's only part of the picture. The people of Afghanistan should be front and centre of, of this whole story. And finally, Sue, when we see the whistleblowers and the journalists who have tried to expose what's been happening, well, they're paying the price now and have paid the price. Yes, indeed. And the one that comes to mind there in relation to Afghanistan is David McBride. And the Australian government's response is, is really becoming quite farcical. Um, initially, it was irresponsible, uh, unjustified. Um, but now, it's in, in persecuting David, David McBride, he is still, because David McBride brought to light some of these um, alleged crimes several years ago, he tried to raise these issues within the military command, he tried to raise them with the AFP, the Federal Police, he tried to raise them, we believe, with certain parliamentarians and nobody wanted to know about it. And far from being labelled a hero now, he is still being prosecuted uh, for divulging these what were meant to be uh, secret events. So this, this has just become beyond belief that we have an official report on alleged war crimes and yet the man who first tried, one of, one of the key people who first tried to bring these to light is still being prosecuted uh, for his sins. He's the one who really should be uh, applauded as a hero in all of this. And the, the prosecution of David McBride really has to stop. It's just farcical for this to continue now. What can be done to make sure that it does stop? Well, I, I think as many letters and messages to the Attorney-General and to the Prime Minister um, as possible saying drop these prosecutions against David McBride. Uh, this is absolutely ridiculous. He tried to bring these crimes to light uh, years ago and nobody wanted to know about it. So I think messages, um, especially to the Attorney-General but also the Prime Minister uh, on this and raise the issue publicly wherever we can, letters to the paper. Um, in any other venue, we can newsletters of whatever sort. Let people know that David McBride still faces a life in prison for doing exactly what the Burriton Report is doing. And a member of the military himself. Yes, yes, military lawyer. Uh, and he was acting with great integrity, honesty and acting according to his conscience. Thank you so much, Sue. Thanks very much, Jen.
Dr. Sue Wareham, the President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. The Melbourne Armenian community is raising humanitarian and development funds to help the community back home as they struggle with the devastating impacts of war and conflict. Please consider donating to the Hayastan All Armenian Fund. For more details, go to www.himnadram.org forward slash en forward slash donate. Alternatively, you can make a donation by way of direct deposit into the Hayastan All Armenian Fund account at the National Australia Bank, BSB number 083230, account number 94677023. The Hayastan All Armenian Fund is a not-for-profit organization delivering education, healthcare, infrastructure, 